the ultimate gift you gave us Christ as your sacrifice that we may be renewed with our relationship with you. Father, I do pray for those people that are, are hurting right now and that are sick. Father, it's encouraging that uh, Colby's family is doing well. But Father, we pray for Whitney with this positive test. We pray for Colby. Um, we pray for just that, that situation. Be with them mightily, Father. Father, I pray for this service. I believe you've given me a word. Father, I pray for the strength. I pray for the resources that can only come from you, Father, to let me say those things that this audience needs to hear. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. I talked to Colby this morning. He actually texted when Teresa and I were on a FaceTime call with uh, Joe and Dasha. And uh, on my smartwatch, I can have the phone going and I could hit yes. He asked me if I was okay with the service this morning. I called him later and he kind of gave me an update. But he said he feels like he just has a head cold, maybe a touch of the flu. Same thing with one of the sons. Whitney did test positive, so we need to keep her in her prayers. But his, uh, his comment was that she's doing well. They're pretty good supply of resources. Their house church is taking care of them. So, but to reach out to them. I think Colby being isolated for a week has got to be almost imprisonment for him. So, uh, as chaplain, maybe I could minister to him. I don't know. Um, on Good Friday, a man claiming to be the Son of God was crucified on a cross. Who was this man? From Chuck Colson's book, uh, Born Again, it's a book that was given to me by the ex-chaplain of the jail. It's a tremendous read. If you know Chuck Colson, he served in the Nixon administration as legal counsel for Richard Nixon. He was one of the first people arrested during the Watergate break-in. But before he was even arraigned, he actually uh, accepted Christ. He met an individual that actually directed him to Christ. Chuck could see something different in this Tom Phillips. He was the president of Rayathon, a defense contractor. And he sought him out. And it's just a beautiful story of him being led to Christ. But Chuck writes in this book, said, even atheists concede that Christ's coming changed the course of history. The year in which we live, for example, is based on the date of his birth. It doesn't stand for after death, but, but that's the way we use it, roughly 2,000 years ago. He was a man without power in any worldly sense, no money, no armies, no weapons, and yet his coming altered the political alignments of nations. Millions upon millions of men have followed his promises and words. No work of literature has even begun to approach the endurance of the scriptures that records Christ's life and have the same vitality today as they did nearly 2,000 years ago. This man is indeed the Son of God. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the empty tomb, the resurrection of the Lord, of the Lord and Savior. Michelangelo, how many of you know anything about this artist and sculptor? He was actually an architect also. He lived in the 1500s. If you've gone to the Sistine Chapel, you'll see a lot of his work that's on the ceiling or on the walls. But the fellow artists of that time, he used to chide him. He used to give him a hard time. He says, you guys are in a position where you're painting and you're celebrating the crucifixion he said the real story is the empty tomb 
That's everything, guys. That's our religion. That's our Christianity. We, we worship, we, we have a Savior that couldn't be held in a grave. It couldn't be kept there. He arose on that third day. And we don't really spend enough time you know, concentrating on that. This next slide is actually, uh, I would love to see this in person, but it's called the hand of God. And if you see the entire picture, you see both God reaching down to man. Uh, I couldn't show you the entire picture, and I think you know why, if you know anything about the history of this. But it shows how God reached down with his son, Jesus Christ. I use a study Bible. I have quite a few of them in my library. And a couple of years ago, I believe, Brother James, you had me uh, supply at Crossroad Baptist Church in Pagosa on a Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning. And I remember turning into a, uh, the Matthew, the, the account of, of the resurrection in Matthew in the David Jeremiah Study Bible has about a two-page outline and it's called the seven proofs of the resurrection. Let me set a little bit of preface to this. When I was in college, uh, one of the big things that scared me was could I afford to even go to college? And right off the bat, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of students, I became a proctor real early, an RA, we called them, a room assistant, where I was head of a dorm. And if memory serves me right, uh, my junior year, we had a, a shooting that ended in a fatality. It was in the dorm adjacent to me. I got noticed real quick, got over there. There was actually the shooter still had the gun. Uh, it ended in a killing of a student. Um, and it's, it was an interesting scenario from the standpoint that you're literally disarming the situation and you're trying to piece together what happened. In today's message, I hope you do the same with the proofs that we have about a literal resurrection. Take your faith out of the equation. Take, take that in what it means. Look at this just purely from the evidence that is available. Faith is everything, and we have to have that, but there is so much physical evidence of a phys physical resurrection, and we're going to concentrate on that. Back to the shooting, I have a picture in the yearbook that year that shows a group of, of grounds workers where this shooter is in the picture. If I ask you to pick out the person that is mentally deranged, I'm guessing about 90% of you would pick him out. Uh, you can just see the anguish in this man's mind. Uh, but it, it's helped me in my, even in my, my goal as being a chaplain, or my position as being a chaplain, that a lot of the people that we're dealing with are in a mental state that's not reality, that's not there. And, and it's something that is so visible. I have a better appreciation for access and some of the mental care health providers that are actually trying to reach that depth that I can't even reach spiritually. Now, that's hard to say that, but yet there's, there's things out there that uh, the mind is just so complicated. Uh, let's turn to our first passage here. We're going to be jumping around. Uh, I, I'd like to use this illustration. We've got a lot of real estate to cover, and I think we might be in trouble, Ronnie. I traded my GMC in for a Ford. I'm not sure how much real estate I can cover today. <laughs> the first proof that we have is the soldiers. And let me just list these seven proofs. We have the soldiers that were guarding the tomb. We have the seal that was placed over the tomb. We have the stone itself that was over the tomb, placed in front of it. We have the sepulcher, the empty tomb. 
we have the shroud, the burial cloth that, uh, that, that was Britt just read about. The burial cloths themselves point to Christ. We have the scars on Christ on the resurrection, after the resurrection. And then we have the physical sightings. Those seven points we're going to go through. Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, getting ready for the Sabbath, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. The evidence that I'm going to be presenting here, the evidence that was outlined in this study Bible, points to biblical references. You see a lot of it right here in this passage. The Jews themselves, the scribes and the Pharisees, were concerned that they weren't, they weren't followers, they weren't believers. And he said the biggest deception is about to occur. Thousands of people already believe in him. They're going to fake a resurrection, and the, 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 this final deception is going to be bigger than the other. Um, and what does is, what is the, the authority say? You have a guard. I've given you a Roman guard. Use it. Use it wisely. Let's spend a little bit of time of looking at that guard. This isn't an actual picture. It's not an actual painting. It's something that was done new, but it helps me to, to visualize what's going on. The soldiers were anywhere from 4 to 16, was what was assigned to a guard. Uh, at the minimum, there was four. More than likely, the emphasis is being put on this to actually protect the body of Christ was was going to be the 16. The custom was that you would have four men in a semicircle around the entrance to the tomb. Their goal was to, to cover an area that was six feet. If you took a, a six-foot radius around the center of them, that was their ground. They had to cover it. The other 12 men were sleeping, but they were sleeping in a prone position, lying down, with their hands backwards and stretched out. They literally covered the entire area. If somebody was going to come in and actually rob the body, they had to step over those 12 men that were sleeping, and then they had to get to the four that were active, that were there. The reality of that occurring is just none. It's just not there. That's the first proof that we have that that body was secure. The seal itself. We know that the traditions of the Romans were such that to make something official, the signet, whoever was in authority, whoever was signing off on something, had a ring with a stamp on it. What they did is, is actually take a cord. It may or may not have been leather. It could have been just a, a woven fabric, but they nailed it between the, the, the stone itself and actually then sealed it with a clay-like material and stamped it. It doesn't secure the entrance, but it tells you if it's tampered with. We do that today in a lot of things. I worked in the petroleum industry. If you have a tank full of oil, 
you have a seal on it. You record that seal number. If the authorities come out, they better not find a broken seal because when you sell oil, you record that that seal was broken, a new seal was put on, and you have the whereabouts to say that, hey, there's security here. The same thing was here. There's no evidence that that seal was broken until Christ came, until Christ was resur resurrected. The third item is the stone itself. Uh, we've been to Israel, we've been to the Holy Land. Some people will actually tell you that this is the site. They feel like where Christ was at is disputed. I think Teresa and I both walked away from the idea that we really don't know. I think man really doesn't know which was the site. Uh, as we're going to read in the verses, the, we'll find out that uh, when the two, when John and Peter ran, that he had to stoop in to look. But they're estimating that the stone itself may have been six foot tall. It may have been anywhere from six inches to, to a foot in thick. If you're in that country, you realize right off the bat that everything is made of stone. The buildings, the, you know, everything, stairways, you just don't see much wood, you see stone. Being the engineer that I am, I did the math on this. Got out my engineering pad, got out my HP reverse Polish notation calculator, did a little arithmetic. If it was six inches thick, it would weigh, let me get my math here, 2,533 pounds, assuming it was limestone. You know, I'm an engineer, I'm kind of a nerdish on that. If it's a foot thick, you double it, you're 5,000 feet. The way those were designed, the Romans and the, the people that time could handle heavy weight, but it was designed so that it was a slight slope to roll the stone over the entrance, but it was uphill then to roll it up the trough. They estimate that 20 men probably could not have moved this. It would have taken more than that. Physically, it was hard for anybody, especially the apostles, to be in a situation where they were going to wrestle that stone. Um, the sepulcher, the empty tomb, item four. Ford's doing pretty good, Ronnie. We're going through them pretty quick. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Now, the, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Verse 6, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is being, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Our son Joe was the first one, I believe, that pointed out in a sermon out of this pulpit that any time you see in an appearance, the first one that pointed it out to me, it's not news to a lot of you probably, 
But anytime an angel appears in the Bible, the reaction of the person is being alarmed, being afraid. You would think the presence of God in the form of an angel, that, that maybe that you'd just be in awe of it, that you wouldn't be afraid. But there's not a case that we can find in the Bible where people aren't just spellbound by it, they're afraid. These ladies were so afraid that they wouldn't even do what the angel asked them to do. It took them a while. They wouldn't tell anybody. They were just alarmed by it. There's several things I want to point out here. Mark's gospel talks about a single angel. Why is that? The other gospels talk about more than one angel. The next, the next slide will actually show you an image on the on the. Uh, your left-hand side of the screen, I hope I'm right, where you have two angels. The one on the bottom, to me, looks feminine. The one thing that we know about the Bible is that any angel that's named is always a male name. So this may not be a real accurate in, in, you know, interpretation of what happened, or it could be that in biblical times, women and children weren't really referenced a lot. I'm not so sure there may not be female angels and they're just not referenced by name. You know, I'm not a theologian. I don't, I don't know all the mechanics of it. But at the same time, don't get twisted in some of the, when you read all the Gospels, you'll read different accounts. There was two angels. The, the account that we read in Matthew just points out the one that was dominant, just talking about it. In verse 7 it says, But, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why do we put Peter out? Why do we take him out of the equation of being one of the 12? The Roman Catholics will tell you he's the first pope. Upon this church, upon Peter, I will build my church. Uh, I hand out Catholic Bibles at the jail. And one of them I looked at the other day, they list all the popes all the way down to the current one with Peter being the first one. I, heard, I read something. I wish I could tell you exactly who, who theorized this, but who's hurting right now? Of the 12, which, which, which of the 12 are, is hurting worse than, than the rest of them? Peter. <laughs> Peter denied Christ three times. Peter did what I would have done probably in, 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 the, in the hour when Christ needed a friend. He wasn't there. You know, God knows that. God knows when you're hurting. God knows when you need that special attention. Christ went out of his way to single out with Peter and say, Peter, it's okay. It's fine, Peter. That's behind us. Um, that's a message there. That's a message in itself. We could spend a lot of time on that. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the shroud, the actual linen cloths that were found in the tomb. John 20, verse 3 through 8. And I want you to take, take a note of this. Look at how many times John refers to himself as the other disciple. When you read this, I remember when I first studied this, it bothered me because the other disciple is the guy who's writing this. This is the book of John. But John kind of, what's unique about this is there's some humor here. John likes it, but count how many times John refers to himself here. Uh, I've got it outlined in yellow if you can count, okay? Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, 
and we're, go we're going to the tomb. So you have Peter and John that were heading to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Who was the fastest of the two? John. I can remember as a fourth grader having a race with all the fourth graders and fifth graders. It was a small school. I think there was about 10 of us between the two grades, but I came in first. I beat even the fifth graders. I remember that kind of stuff. Verse 5, and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciples, verse 8, who came to the tomb first, He's reminding you that he won that race. Went in also, and he saw and believed. It's a neat account. When you go through the Gospels and look at the whole story of what's going on, you get an account of it. How many times does John refer to himself as the other disciple? Six times is what I count here. He's pretty proud of himself. He doesn't really elaborate on the fact that when he got to the tomb, he didn't want to go in, did he? It was Peter, and it's the Peter that we kind of have a picture of. When he finally got there, he rushed right in. He wasn't afraid to, to see what he had. It's, it's an interesting account where John has this story on himself. The linen cloth, what do we know about that? When you read the scripture and study it, what amazed him more than anything else the Marys and John and Peter, was that the cloths were lying on the stone in the form of a body. It's like Jesus had left, but the outline of the cloths were still there. That was abnormal, wasn't it? If you were going to leave, if Jesus did this on his own, there's actually atheists that postulate that, that, that this was Christ never really died. He was in a state of, of a coma. He left the tomb on his own. How do you explain how he got out? Short of a miracle, is next to impossible. But would you leave without your clothes? The only thing he had was the garment they wrapped him in. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? There's just nothing there that makes sense. Be objective on it. Uh, several years ago, and the older I get, that several probably is closer to 10 years ago, but the uh, lifeguard ministries and one of their banquets brought in a, uh, an expert, a scientific expert, that had actually been part of a team, I believe, that actually studied the Shroud of Turin. And on that Turin, on the Shroud, you can see the image here where you see the, the image of Christ himself. And the Catholic Church, for years and years, they, they have possession of the, the Shroud now. But for years and years, they said, this is a fake. We don't stand by this. We don't know the, 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 you know, the, the validity of it. And they really distance themselves from it. They're softening that now. And I was talking to Teresa about it because 10 years ago, my memory is, is uh, but the general gist of what this man was saying was this very well could be. I don't think anybody knows for sure without a doubt that this was Christ's burial cloth. But he said the linen itself that dates back to that time frame, the, the way that the, they know Christ's body and the reverse imaging of it 
everything they know about it, there's nothing that says that it couldn't be. I look at it and say, I don't know. I have no idea. It's one of the things I think when we get to heaven, we're going to have that kind of understanding. But I wouldn't be surprised if it is. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't. Now talk to me afterwards if you have some insight on this. If I've ever in a position of being where that's located, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see that image. It's on display, I believe, or at least before the pandemic it was. The Shroud of Turin. Number six is the scars. I was talking earlier before church started. The scars on your body tell a story, don't they? I can I, I make a, a comment that you can look at a man's hands and tell if he's right-handed or left-handed. You're in a situation where what does the dominant hand do to the other hand? My left hand is by far the more scarred hand. Uh, the most recent emergency, or the, I guess it was the emergency room visit, it was a knife blade that went through my thumb. <laughs> uh, I went in, they said, well, you couldn't, you couldn't deal with this? I said, when I take pressure off, I think it's an artery and blood shot across the room when I did that. They said, we can't handle that. Are you okay getting yourself into the hospital? And Teresa drove me in, and they, they steered that. It was kind of a long story. We can go into it. But we had one nurse once, a doctor actually here in Bayfield, that I went in with an injury where I yanked the nail off, and she looked at me and said, Teresa's out of town again, isn't she? <laughs> I drove myself in. <laughs> Tim from Home Improvement, just about. The scars, John 20, 27 through 28. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. When Jesus appears to the other 12, to the apostles, it's without Thomas. Thomas hadn't seen him yet. And when Thomas makes the comment that I need to see him, I need to see that, he hadn't had that privilege that the other had. I believe Colby talked about this last week. He needed that proof. Where were you and I be if we were in that same boat? If somebody was just telling us that Christ returned, it's a lot different when you actually see him, isn't it? It's a famous piece of artwork. But it's hard for me to picture that that actually occurred. But the verse is pretty plain, isn't it? You can actually see him pointing at that scar. You can see him actually even maybe, you know, putting his finger in the scar itself where they pierced his side. There's so much evidence that this really did happen, that you were in a situation that this wasn't something that people just wrote about. There's so much this out there. The last thing that, uh, the last point that we want to talk about well, let me, let me go to this first. If the apostles had stolen the body, and that's one of the postulations that are out there, and they made up the story about the resurrection, imagine this imaginary conversation between Peter and the other apostles. Again, it's an imaginary conversation that Peter is talking to the other apostles. Great ideas, guys. We can perpetuate this lie and then devote ourselves to spreading it everywhere. Just think of what's in it for us. Think about what we will gain by it. We'll be hated. We'll lose our income. We'll be beat. We'll be mocked. We'll lose our reputations. We'll be imprisoned. 
and I, Peter, get to be crucified hanging upside down. Wow, sounds like a great idea. I can't wait to get started. <laughs> you see Thomas, you see the apostles. When Thomas saw the scars, when he felt the wounds of Jesus, his comment was, I believe. <laughs> now, you can wrestle with that. When did they really become believers? And I think the general feeling that I have, and, and I think that you know, most of you probably have, is they were believers, but boy, was it solidified. Was it really, you know, imprisoned into their minds where it wasn't going to escape? They saw. They saw the death. They saw the, the beatings that Christ cooked, and they saw the, the, the resurrected Christ. They were believers. To go through what they were going to go through, they had to be believers. You couldn't live that lie and be tortured at the same time. They took where they were at, and they didn't flee from it, they went right back to where they were, where the people knew who they were, and they were willing to suffer and die for that. That's just huge evidence that this really occurred. The sightings. You know, if you are in a trial, if you're in a situation, the reference I gave you to the shooting in college, when campus security got there, one of the first things they wanted to know, who saw this? Who actually saw what happened? We had a couple of people that saw bits and pieces, but uh, an eyewitness means everything, doesn't it? Turn to 1 Corinthians, Paul's account in chapter 15, verse 3 through 6. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. The, the number of witnesses are, are amazing, isn't it? Um, we know the, the close, the inner circle, we know that, but this audience of 500 at one time, one account is that if you were having a trial and you were basing it on nothing but the eyewitnesses, if you gave each eyewitnesses six minutes, it would take 50 hours of testimony to hear what they saw. This wasn't, I saw a shadowy figure coming out of the tomb. <laughs> this was real live up front. We ate with him. We dined with him. I felt the scars. It was there. Uh, as good an eyewitness testimony as you can as you can get. That account in 1 Corinthians is the gospel message, isn't it? I mean, it's everything. It tells you where you are. You tell that Christ died for your sins, that the scriptures say that, that, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, and that, he, that he's coming back for us. That's the, the scriptures that are there. And these were eyewitnesses' accounts, and when you're sharing that gospel, I encourage you not to make up stuff. Tell people what Christ has done for you. Tell people how he's real in your life. How can they argue with something that you, you know? You were there. I tell my conversion story as a fourth grader. I tell what's happened with me medically through the years. That's my relationship with God. That's my relationship with the Savior. And they can't argue with that. It's, it's a situation where... If I try to say somebody else's testimony, it's a different story, isn't it? 
Tell them your story. God's message in a summary. I think you guys may have heard this before, but if you really summarize the gospel, if you try to put it maybe in as few words as you can, God had a plan. He created man. We wronged God. He had every reason to reject and punish man. He didn't have to do what he did. We disobeyed. That's, that's, that's not part of the terms. God chose to reconcile us through Jesus. Roughly 2,000 years ago, God sent his son and very simply said, the only way to the Father is through my son. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Easter Sunday celebrates that empty tomb, celebrates that resurrected Savior. Christ died on the cross and he arose three days later. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful for the truths that are there. I'm so grateful for, Father, that I can look at things and I can see the reality. I can see the physical evidence of what your word says. I don't have to have that. I know you want us to accept that by faith and faith alone. But God, thank you for that affirmation. Father, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, Father, we pray that at this time we'll just remember the sacrifice that you gave us through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.